If you can turn in your Bibles to Math, uh, not Matthew, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 this morning. You know, we've been in Romans and uh, the first several um, chapters, at least the first three, deal with man's condition in the eyes of God. God reveals to us what we look like to him. Russell, could you get that up on the screen for us? Um, and from today at the end of this message onward, we get to see what God does for us with our condition. Uh, I call this this morning total wipeout because you're going to see that no one can stand before God on their own. No one can stand with their goodness, with their works, with their religion, so forth and so on. Nobody can stand before God. We are all totally wiped out in the eyes of God. So, that doesn't give us much hope, but the Bible is full of that hope, and I hope today that you will see that as we make it through the message. Let's stand together and read a few verses in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not, be, will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, and every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words, and mightest prevail when thou art judged. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, today we pray for your blessing on your word for us. Lord, it's a difficult passage. It's uh, not easy to understand. I pray that you speak to this people uh, from this pulpit today. Not from me, Lord, but from you. I pray you make it plain and clear of what you want us to know. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you old-timers will know the uh, picture on the screen and the name, Vince Lombardi. He was a famous football coach of the Green Bay Packers way back in the 60s. Uh, he began the 1961 season. The Packers had failed to win the Super Bowl the year before. He began that next year by entering the locker room. And instead of new plays and new strategies, he just held up a football and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. And he reconstructed that team from the very basic of things. That phrase is used in a lot of marketing today and a lot of other areas besides football. Gentlemen, this is a football. Today we're going to go back to the very basic of things. I want to take you back to the very beginning of what the Lord wanted to teach us from the scriptures. If we could put something up there that Vince Lombardi did, it would be this. People, this is the gospel God, right? He said it. He wrote it. He wants you to understand it. And so we will do that. The first uh, 20 verses of chapter 3 of Romans uh, has to do with the uh, Two parts. One is a dialogue. Uh, Paul has an imaginary friend that he talks to in the first nine uh, verses of the text. And then Paul changes from that dialogue with this imaginary person. He changes to a description of what God sees mankind being. And as we read that, we kind of lose encouragement. But then tonight, I hope that you can come tonight... Because in chapter 3, verse 21, you read the words, but now. And so we're going to look at what that means. What God has seen 
and what God's going to do. We'll look at that tonight uh, in our six o'clock service. So the dialogue between this uh, man is actually the dialogue between a Jewish person, a Jewish teacher of the law, a rabbi, let's say, and he has a discussion with Paul. And that's how you can read this chapter 3, the first nine verses. Now, we have to go back into chapter 2 a little bit and see what is a Jew. And we discussed that last week, at least on Sunday night. What makes a person a Jew? Well, you say, well, he's born a Jew, not according to the Bible. That doesn't make you a Jew. Well, you say that a Jew is someone who has the law of God. Okay, but not according to the Bible. A Jew is someone who was circumcised according to the law of Abraham, the law of God given to Abraham. Okay, but not according to the Bible. So what is a Jew? Is he born a Jew? Does he have the Jewish bloodline in him? Does that make him a Jew? Not according to the scripture. Go back to verse 28 of chapter 2. Let's find out what makes a Jew. All right. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So according to Paul... According to Scripture, a Jew is someone who ultimately believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he becomes a believer. He becomes, so to speak, a Jew. Now, don't get that twisted up. Brother Clay saying we're all Jews, okay? You have to understand, Paul says you're not a Jew because you dress like one, because you talk like one, because you go to the synagogue. That doesn't make you a Jew. A Jew is somebody whose heart has been transformed. A Jew is somebody who believes in the law of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes a person of Jewish character, of Jewish belief, all right? Now, you could replace uh, in verse 1, let's start there again, then what advantage has the Jew or what benefit of circumcision? So here's the argument. Somebody jumps up in the crowd and says, hey, Paul, you said that God gave us circumcision to be a sign that we are Jewish, but now you're saying that doesn't count. That, that's not important. Or you say that we have the law of God given to us, but now you're saying that that doesn't count. It, it's not important. So what advantage do we have being Jewish? Do you see the intent of the scripture here? The guy jumps up and says, what advantage do we have of being a Jew if what you say about being a Jew doesn't matter. Paul says in verse 2, you have a great advantage. You have a great advantage in every respect. First of all, you are the people that were given the words of God, the oracles of God, as it says in the text. Those Jewish people had the word of God given to them. Not the guy in the deep, dark jungle of Africa. He didn't have the stone tablets. Not the guy over here, the Eskimo in Alaska. He didn't have the stone tablets to carry around the Word of God. Who had those? Moses. Moses was of Hebrew descent. Those people became Jews because they lived in Judea. 
They weren't born Jewish. They just lived in Judea. Therefore, they were entitled Jews. They had the word of God on stone. And that's Paul's argument with this imaginary friend who jumps up and says, if you say circumcision doesn't matter anymore, then what advantage do I have of being a Jew? Paul says, you've got every advantage. First of all, you have the, been entrusted with the word of God. Now, if God gave us all of these things, but Paul is setting them aside. This man jumps up and wants to know what advantage do I have of being a Jewish? And Paul says, you've been entrusted with the law of God, the, the light that God gives you. Uh, today, you might replace this Jew with a Mormon. What advantage do I have of being a Mormon? You might replace this Jew in verse 1 with a Catholic. What advantage do I have of being a Catholic? Or you might replace this with a Muslim. Or you might replace this with any other type of religion. You might even replace it with Baptist. What advantage do I have of being a Baptist? If what you say God gives us doesn't matter. If you're trusting in your religion to get you to heaven, you will argue like this Jew. God gave me the circumcision as a sign that I'm a child of God. God gave me that baptism up there as a sign that I'm a child of God. Does that make you a child of God? No. Does that make you saved when you get in that water and you're baptized? Does that save you? No. Does nothing. But a Baptist could say, then what advantage do I have of being a Baptist if what you say, this doesn't matter? That's the argument that Paul arises in verse 1 and verse 2. Now, he says that you have a great advantage because you've been given the law. Do you know that we have billions of Bibles in America today? We have millions of people who have billions of Bibles in America today. But did you know that the majority of all the people have never read their Bible? If I knew that my eternal destiny laid in the teaching of this book, wouldn't you be interested in finding out what it says? Wouldn't you be interested in knowing what is in here if your eternal destiny depended upon it? But yet, across this great land of America... 99% of the people don't know what this Bible says about them. Does not know what this Bible teaches about eternal life. We've been given the light just like the Jew was given the light, the Ten Commandments. And the Jew failed to use those commandments. He failed to live by those commandments. He failed to observe them. He failed to, to love them. He failed to follow them. And you and I have the Word of God, the heart of God, the mind of God, the will of God is in this book for you and I to learn and to know. How many of you have read it through? Well, I've read it through, preacher. How many of you are living what it says? That number goes down. How many of you are faithful to what it says? That number goes down. You see what I'm saying? God gave the Jews the Word. They failed to utilize it. God has given us the word. We are privileged of all people in the world to have a Bible in our hand. But yet we don't 
read it. We don't follow it. We don't really know what it says about my eternal destiny. Where I go. What happens to me when this body stops working? What happens to you when your body stops working? I had friends when I was young that used to think when your body stopped working, they put it in the ground and you were no more. You were annihilated. Your spirit, your soul, if there really was such a thing, just dissolved. But you know what? I learned that that's not the case. I never really believed that. I believed in the afterlife. I didn't think that God made man to work 65 years, retire with bony hands, and then die 20 years later. I didn't think that was God's purpose for making us. Work my fingers to the bone, retire, and die 20 years later. What have I done? There had to be more. And so God tells us and shows us there's more. He shows us there's life after death. He shows us there's eternal life for those who believe. Amen. Eternal separation from God for those who don't believe. When you die not believing in God doesn't mean you go to a place that you don't exist anymore. It means you go into hell where you exist eternally, forever, separated from anything and everything that is good and holy and right and true. And so the Bible teaches us these important things. And this man jumps up in Paul's mind, imaginary mind, and he says, what advantage do I have then if none of the things count with my religion? And Paul says, that's the problem. You have a religion, but you don't have a relationship. And God, as we learned in chapters 1 through 2, that God has given his law to the guy in the deep, dark jungle of Africa. How did he do that? He wrote it on his heart. He wrote it on his conscience, what is good and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. God wrote that on our heart. Every man has been enlightened. How do I know that? I'll show you how I know it. John chapter 1, verse 9, look what it says. He, being John the Baptist, those are my parentheses, so you'll know who he is. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Do you see that? Every man ever born in this world is enlightened with the law of God. Right, wrong, true, false, evil, good. Every man knows that within his heart. So you say, well, the man in Africa didn't have the Ten Commandments. He didn't have the gospel preached to him. We talked about this in chapter 1. What happens to that man? That man is judged upon the law written on his heart. Did you know the right thing to do? And the man says, yes. Did you always do it? And the man says, no. Therefore, he violated the law that God wrote on his heart. You see that? You and I were privileged to have the Bible. We have been enlightened by God. Today we have Bibles. We go to Sunday school. We have Bible studies. James showed me this morning. How many versions of the Bible were there, brother? 
69 English versions of the Bible. You can pick and choose whatever version you want. You have it available to you, but yet we fail to use it. We fail to utilize it. We fail to follow what God says. Now, the Jews had it, but here's what they did with it. They put it in the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of their day. And the scribes and the Pharisees took the light of the world of God, the mind and the will and the love and the heart of God, and they began to look through it to find needles in a haystack. Now, what do I, what do I mean by it? Instead of sharing it with the world, instead of showing it to people about how to be saved, they dug through it so that they could find little secrets about the Sabbath day. How many steps can a man take on the Sabbath day and be legal? Is it legal to spit on a rock on the Sabbath day? Did you know that's one of the rules that they tried to determine from the law of God? What about the washing of your hands before you eat, before you come to church, before you perform a ceremony? How about the washing of our hands? How do we do that correctly? That's what the Jews did. They started looking for needles in a haystack instead of turning that light towards the world and shedding light on everyone. You know what Jesus said about them? And that, he said it in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness you blind guides you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel see what he's saying you dig through those laws straining out the gnats and you end up swallowing a camel so god got fed up with him and god took that word and that light and that law and he gave it to us now, what do we do with it? Do we share it with the world around us? Do you tell your neighbors about the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you tell the guys at work about salvation and eternal life with Jesus Christ? Or do you remain quiet? And you take that law and you dig it and you study it and you read it and you say, Oh, so-and-so shouldn't be doing that. Look what I found in the scriptures. And we gossip and we slander and we do all the things that the Jews we're doing with the light of the world amen you see what i'm saying we got to stop we got to rearrange we got to look at what we do we have to correct that and that's what god is teaching us today now the argument continues here in verse three here's another question what then if some did not believe their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of god will it this jew jumps up again in the crowd and he says hey if some of us Jews did not believe God's word, will God withhold his promises from all the Jews? That's what he's asking there. If the disbelief of some, will that cause God to nullify all of his promises to the Jews? What's Paul's answer? May it never be. Those are the strongest words you'll find in the Greek language, by the way. May it never never be god forbid that in fact he says you've twisted it up you're making god at fault instead of man at fault if man doesn't believe god 
will God withhold his promise to man? No, he will not. He will always fulfill it to the one who believes. So you're sitting here this morning and you don't believe the Bible. You don't believe in God or Jesus Christ necessarily. You're here for some other reason. Will God punish everybody because you don't believe? No, he won't. He'll fulfill his promise to those who believe. In fact, Paul answers it like this. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written. And then he quotes Psalm 51, when David performed the great sin of adultery and murder with the woman Bathsheba. You remember the story. David covered it up so nobody would know. And they, what, his whole world watched David being a righteous king for a year and a half after committing that horrific crime. And then one day God sent Nathan, the old prophet, with the bony little hand. Right? And he told David a story about a sheep and a, and a man coming to town. And another guy stole sheep. And, and David said, who is that man? He should be stoned to death. And Nathan pointed that shaking old bony finger at David and said, You are the man. You are the man, David. What did David do? He repented and he cried out to God. And he said, I've been wrong and I've been hiding it and I am ashamed and I ask you to forgive me. And then he says this in this scripture, that you might be justified in your words. And that you might be prevail when you sit on your throne to judge. So David says, there's no excuse for man. There's no way around it. There's no way out. I must surrender to God. You know, it's the first thing we want to do is to blame God for our inability to live up to the scripture. We want to blame God that we can't keep the Ten Commandments. We want to blame God that he made us the way he made us and that we are not at fault. It's him that's at fault making us like this. He made me a sinner. He made me do this. He made me do that. And we want to blame God for our inability. Paul says, may it never be. God is true. Man is the liar, not the other way around. Amen? So understand that. We can see that even if a Baptist fails, God will bless the believing Baptist. I know a lot of people who say they don't go to church because they sat in a bar and drank at the bar with a Baptist deacon. That's why he don't go to church. That's why she don't go to church. That's why they don't go to church. Even if a Baptist fails, will God withhold the promise to all Baptists? No, he won't. He's faithful to the ones who believe. He's faithful to those who love him in return. And so, this Jew asked two questions. He asked another one, then in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? What's he saying there? If my sin makes God's glory greater, why does God blame me for my sin? If I sin and God's grace is poured out on that, and people see that, then why does God get mad at me? 
Why does God get upset? Why does God judge me if my sin makes him look good? That's what he's asking in verse 5. Do you see that? Can you, can you understand it and decipher it uh, in, in your text? If our sin makes God look good, then why does he judge us? Let's sin more so that it makes God look better. And here's Paul's answer in verse 6. May that never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? Now, Paul carries that thought out to its end. If God blesses you, the sinner, and it makes God look good to the people around you, why does God judge you if your sin makes him look good by his pouring out of grace? So Paul says, let's carry that out to the end. Let's say that God doesn't judge you. Let's just say that you are allowed to run rampant in sin. And God doesn't judge anyone. In fact, he removes himself from the throne of judgment. Now there's no judge, no judgment, and you and I are turned loose. What would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. We would spiral down into a chaos of immorality. And this world would dissolve itself at the hand of man. Amen? Do you see that? So God has to step in and make a judgment against wrong and a blessing of what's right. He has to do that. Or you and I would be wiped out. You and I would be finished. You and I would be done with. So we have to understand this. That's a ridiculous thought to say, let's keep sinning so that God looks better. That's ridiculous to say that because we see the end result. You and I would be hopeless. Now, one thing and point I want to make. Sin never glorifies God. Sin never makes God look good. Okay? Get that out of your head if you think like this man thought. Hey, if my unrighteousness makes God look good, then let's keep doing it. As Paul says, may it never be. Sin always has its evil results. Sin never produces good. Let me show you in Galatians 6 on the screen. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. God has made that an ordained law. He will judge sin and he will bless the righteous. And that cannot be changed. So understand that, church. Now Paul continues on his own without the imaginary friend in verse 7. Paul says, if through my lie, now Paul's including himself. First he started with the Jews, and then he started with mankind, and then he started with the religious people, and now he's worked his way to himself. If my lie, I'm sorry, but if through my lie the truth of God abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner and why not say, as we slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. No evil 
Let's do evil so that good may come. This removes the difference between good and evil. If everybody does evil, and we think that we're doing good by it, what is that saying to us? That there is no difference between good and evil. If evil brings good, then let's do evil. And so what you say is evil, and what I say is evil, are different. And what you say is evil, and what I say is evil, are different. And in fact, what you say is good, and what you say is good, are different. So everybody's left to themselves to decide what is good and what is evil. And so today, you and I see it in our society, do we not? We live in a society where people say what they think is good. People say what they think is evil. And it comes to this. What I like is good. What I dislike is evil. And if we're left to that of ourselves, again, we spiral down into a chaotic society of immorality. We're already heading there, aren't we? We see that on the news every night. We see people making a determination of their own life of what is good and what is wrong, what is right, what is true, what is evil, and what is great. And you and I have to learn to differentiate that. God determined what was right long ago. God determined what was evil long ago. And we can't fall into that trap of there being no opposition to evil. God has to judge the wrong. And He does it even in this world. If He doesn't, then no one judges anything and our society plunges into an abyss of immorality. No one to oppose anyone. Paul says at the end of verse 8, look what he says, their condemnation is just. If you think like that, if you think that you determine what's right and wrong, then your condemnation is justified. You'll be held accountable for that. You will be condemned for that. That's what Paul says. Now, he gets away from the imaginary friend in verse 9, and he goes into the uh, description of what we are in the eyes of God. Look at that with me. What then? Are we better than they? Paul says, are we who are religious better than the unreligious? Am I a believer better off than the unbeliever? Am I someone who has made it and all these other people are lost and undone? Am I better than you? Are you better than me? That's what Paul is saying here. And let's look what his answer is. Not at all. Wait a minute. I thought believers were better than unbelievers. I thought the religious were better off than the unreligious. I thought the Jew was better off than the Mormon. I thought the Baptist was better off than the Jehovah's Witness. Paul says, not at all. Why? Let's read on. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks and Baptists and Mormons and Islamics and Catholics and Jehovah's Witness and all are under sin. All of us. We've been wiped out. None of us can stand before God on our merit. None of us can say, I've done good enough to be before a holy God. None of us can. 
Nobody. Not even Billy Graham, bless his heart. Not even the Apostle Paul, bless his heart, can say that we are good enough to stand before a holy God. We started in the book of Romans with the wicked, remember? Men with men, women with men, women, all those people doing ungodly things. And we realized that they can't stand on their own against a holy God. Then Paul moved into chapter 2 and he talked about the self-righteous people. The people who thought they were better than everybody else. They can't stand before a holy God. Then he moved into the man in the deep dark jungles of Africa who had the law in his heart. But he's violated that too and he can't stand before God. And then he moves to the religious zealot. That would be the Jews and the Baptist. And he says... They can't even stand before God on their own. Who can? Let's look. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then he says the greatest thing I think he said in the whole text. Verse 10. As it is written. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, you know what he means. He means that it was written somewhere. Where was it written? Who wrote it? Everything that Paul has described to us this morning in chapter 3, God already said. Everything that you think about yourself today and everything you think you're doing today and you're, you're moving towards heaven, and that's all been arranged and written and recorded by God already, my friend. There's nothing you're doing that's new. There's nothing you're going to read in here that's new. It is written. God said it. Also, that means that you and I don't have the last word. You know what? When, when two people get in an argument, one of them always wants to have the last word. Always wants to separate and walk away and say something as they're walking away under their breath. Somebody always wants to have the last word. And you know, that's you and I with God. We want to have the last word with God. We want to know that He hears us and our explanation of why I sinned. God, I've got a good reason for that. I, 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 was, I, I was at odds with everything and it was piling on me and I had no way out. And I had to do this. That's my last word. But God says, it's already written. I've got the last word, not you. He's got the last word, not us. We listen to him. He doesn't have to listen to us because why? It is written. What's written? Let's read on. Verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. Now, you know, when I first read that, sometimes I think about everybody in my life that I know, all the good people, you know, all the good, old, blessed women in our church, the most gentle, loving, caring people, and the Bible says they're not even righteous. And if you were really honest with yourself, when you read that, you think, there is none righteous, no, not one, but in your mind you think, except me. That just shows how unrighteous you are, brother. Amen? There's none righteous, not even one. Verse 11, there is none who understands. Now, wait a minute. We, we, we understand, don't we? we? We know. We got the Bible. We study it. We read it. 
We, we go to school, we go to Bible colleges, we go to universities, we go to high school, we go to Votech school. We understand, we know, we, we learn things. But God says, in the matters of life, there's no one who understands. Wow, think about it. There's none righteous, there's none who understands. Verse 11 again, there is none who seeks for God. You came here today, didn't you? I bet there are churches across this great land that are full of people. I bet there are synagogues. I bet there are Buddhist temples. I bet there are uh, Hindu temples. I bet there are people under a shade tree somewhere, and they're all searching for God. But God says, well, no, wait a minute. They're searching for a God, not the God. There is none who seeks for God. The reason you're here today is not because you decided to come. The reason you're here today is because God brought you here. He arranged your life. He had somebody invite you. He did something in your life somewhere, somehow, that this day, at this moment, you would come to this church. God is seeking you. You aren't seeking God. Amen? That's what the scripture says. Let's go on. Verse 12, for all have turned aside, right? And together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Oh, wow, I, I really don't like that. There's none who does good. Sometimes we think we do good. You know, we got that camera right up there on the sound booth, and it's, it's shooting up here and recording this service, and we're sending it out on the internet and so forth and so on. Imagine with me, if you would, that you come to church next Sunday and we've got one of those cameras sitting here and one here and one here, 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 and they're all looking at you. And there's something special about these cameras. When you walk in that door, they start recording your thoughts. And so all these cameras are up here recording all of you as you walk into the building. And they record your thoughts as you look across the sanctuary at the people. They record your thoughts as that person sits down next to you. They record your thoughts while somebody's praying. They record your thoughts while you're singing. They record your thoughts while I'm preaching. They record your thoughts. All right. Then the next Sunday, you come back to church, and lo and behold, instead of having a church service, we're going to watch on the big screen everybody's thoughts during the church service. How many would show up? There is none who does good, not even one. We all have thoughts that we shouldn't have. We all think we allow that to happen. We have those thoughts. That's what the Lord is telling us here. He talks about our character. He talks about our conduct. Look in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. Have you ever noticed that about mankind? We leave a wake wherever we go, and it's a wake of ruin. Why do you think we have ghettos and slums in our big cities? It's because of the heart of man. That's all it is. Why do you think our streams are polluted and our mountains are, are burned and polluted? Why do you think that's because of the heart of man? We don't care. 
Somebody else will do it. Something else will happen. We are like that. We are deceiving of ourselves. We have the poison of asp under our lips. We gossip. We slander. We talk about people. We do all of that. Our throat is an open grave according to God. Could you imagine God looking down your throat and seeing an open grave within you? But that's what he says. That's what mankind is and has become. We, we're in trouble, people. We need somebody to help us. Wherever we go, we leave ruin. Verse 17, and the path of peace have they not known. Wouldn't that be a great slogan for the UN? The path of peace we have not known. You know, the UN tries to solve problems and conflicts all over the world, but they never get it done, do they? Why? Because the path of peace they do not know. Only God knows that. Man does not know that. Man can't figure that out. I can't even figure out my own relationships with my own kids. I have enough turmoil with that, let alone the world turmoil, amen, and the path of peace we have not known. Now, we saw the conduct and the character of men. Here's the reason for all of it in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Kim and Sarah, why don't you all go get ready? We're just about there. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is why we are in the shape that we're in. That is why we can't figure things out. We have no fear of God. And he goes on to say in the last two verses this morning, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who is under the law? Every man. Every man is under the law that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. We're wiped out, people. We have no hope. We have no way of standing before a holy God. Not even the best Baptist in this room will be able to stand before God on your merit, on your goodness, on your love, on your forgiveness. None of us can stand before that God. Amen? What do we do? Every mouth is closed. You and I have violated the law. There's nothing that we can do to change that. We have become accountable to God. We are guilty. We are wiped out. We have no hope. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul writes in another place, I wouldn't have known that coveting was a violation of the law if I had not read, thou shalt not covet. I wouldn't know that it's wrong to steal if I had not read, thou shalt not steal. I wouldn't have known it's wrong to commit adultery if I had not read, do not commit adultery. You see, the law was given to show us what sin is. And we're wiped out because we couldn't live up to that commandment. But then Paul gives us hope. And tonight we'll cover that in the rest of chapter 3, verse 21. But now. Amen? But now. Jesus has done something for us. God has done something for us. God provides a righteousness for us that we could never earn on our own. 
I hope tonight that you come and discover what that is. I hope tonight you come and discover how to get that. I hope tonight you come and find it for yourself. We won't be here long. We're here less than an hour on Sunday nights. Six o'clock. But now, God has a way to rescue you from being wiped out. You cannot stand before Him. You need help. God shows you that help tonight. Let's pray. Father, bless your word tonight as we, or today as we have read it and we discuss it, Lord, and we see that you and I, as people, Lord, we are hopeless without you. And I pray, Father, that your will would be accomplished in this room and that someone might see that they have tried to be religious. They've tried to be upright. They've tried to do the right thing. But we all find that it's hopeless within us. We're broken. We're fallen. We're Adam's descendants, Lord. We need you. We need your help. I pray that you deliver someone even today. In Jesus' name, amen.